Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 6 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about Philip Johnson, an architect whose youthful flirtation with fascism helped contribute to his decision to remove all of the sort of political content of modernism from its designs. What are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, as usual, I'd like to start with a poem. Another one? Yeah. Are there dicks in this one, at least? No dicks. Damn. John Bull has stood for Parliament. A dog must have his day. The country thinks no end of him, for he knows how to say, at a bean feast or a banquet, that all must hang their trust, upon the British Empire, upon the Church of Christ. The ghost of Roger Casement is beating on the door. Today's subject was, at the height of his career, a national hero in the UK, knighted by George V. His life ended as a traitor and a pervert, executed by hanging in Pentonville Prison, before being thrown in an unmarked grave in the prison yard, his body covered in quicklime. His name was Roger Casement, and his rise and fall tells of Britain's hypocritical relationship with imperialism and colonialism. The poem was by William Butler Yeats, published a few years after he died. Roger Casement was born in 1864 at the family home in Sandy Cove, a very pretty seaside suburb south of Dublin in Ireland. As we discussed in previous episodes on James VI and I, and earlier this season on Castlereagh, Ireland was at the time part of the United Kingdom, and like Castlereagh, Casement was born into an Anglo-Irish family. The family were middling sorts. His father was a captain in the Royal Dragoons, who had fought in the First Anglo-Afghan War in 1842 a devastating defeat for the British East India Company. For the first 200 years of British colonisation in the Indian subcontinent, the wars of conquest were fought by the army and navy of a joint stock company, the British East India Company, who administered the colonies rather than the British state, per se. Colonisation was a business venture. Publicly traded companies received charters from European monarchs, giving them the right to trade, and had huge private armies to open up markets and to suppress colonised peoples. They weren't government ventures per se. The British East India Company's private army in 1800 was a quarter of a million men, which was twice the size of the British army. And the British Raj, that is the British government rule in India, wasn't established until the 1850s. Understanding the business nature of colonialism is important to understanding the story of Roger Casement's life, and Casement was living in the heart of a burgeoning commercial empire. As we've discussed, the issue of nationality and religion um, were the core of politics for the Anglo-Irish at the time. Although he was born in Dublin, his Protestant father would insist that he was born in Ulster, and while his mother was raised Protestant, she secretly converted to Catholicism, and when he was four, on holiday with her four children in Wales, it's alleged that she secretly had Roger baptised into the Catholic faith. There was confusion around her faith. Roger believed his whole life that his mother had been raised a Catholic, but evidence suggests she was a convert and Casement's cousin seems to back that up, as she wrote, quote, Anne was brought up a Protestant, but the warmth of her nature and a certain emotional strain revolted from the coldness of the Protestant faith, and shortly after her marriage she found the Catholic faith. Anne Casement's nature was too expansive, too beauty-loving, too vivacious to find consolation in a religion that cramped, that denied, that suppressed, and so she joined the Catholic Church, end quote. He was very close to his mother and secretly embraced their shared faith in his life. And although his father had the stern discipline of a military man, Roger was fascinated with his stories of daring do in what would have been extremely exotic locations in which he'd served. But when he was nine years old, his beloved mother died, which sent Captain Casement into a depression. They moved around a lot, including to South London, where Roger and his brother Thomas appeared in court when he was 11 years old, having stolen a book from a newsstand. A report in the Morning Post the next day read, The prisoner's father, a respectable-looking man, here came forward and said he could not account for the lads taking the books unless it was to pay for the loan of them some other day. They were inveterate, inveterate readers of juvenile literature. He allowed his boys money to buy books and would have paid for them. He believed that the showy covers and sensational titles attracted their attention and desire to read them. He assured his worship that they were not thieves. Roger and his three elder siblings were sent to live with his paternal great-uncle and aunt in the ancestral home of Magarin Temple House near Ballycastle on the northern Irish coastline. 
Their father lived in a hotel in Ballymena, 40 miles away, grief-stricken, and three years later, as Roger turned 12, he too died of tuberculosis. Roger was sent to the diocesan school in Ballymena, where he devoured books about far-off locations, and he was a hardy child who enjoyed exploring the outdoors. He spent his summer holidays with his family in Liverpool, and his uncle, Edward Bannister, who worked in shipping, would regale him with stories about his journeys in South America and in the Congo. He had an interest in politics as a teenager, following the campaign of Irish nationalist Charles Stuart Parnell, the Irish Parliamentary Party, and the Irish National Land League, who sought to first overthrow the system of English domination through landlordism, help support poor tenant farmers being starved off their land by genocidal British policies, and advocated for home rule for Ireland. Parnell said, quote, When we have undermined English misgovernment, we have paved the way for Ireland to take her place amongst the nations of the world. And let us not forget that it is the ultimate goal at which we all at which all we Irishmen aim. None of us, whether we be in America or in Ireland, will be satisfied until we have destroyed the last link which keeps Ireland bound to England. Between his mother and father, Roger was torn between this sort of family identity as an Anglo-Irish Protestant and his more heartfelt association and belief in Catholicism and Irish nationalism. It's clear that despite a lack of formal education when he was young, he was a very smart kid, but money wasn't found to continue his education. When he was 15, his uncle suggested it was time he stopped his education and got into the business of empire. He jumped at the opportunity and got a job in Liverpool with the Elder Dempster Company, a shipping line operating between Liverpool and the west coast of Africa. Let's zoom out a bit to look at Europe and Africa in this period. You'll remember at the end of the Castlereagh episode that we'd seen the defeat of Napoleon and the establishment of a new European order at the Congress of Vienna. The American Revolution in the United States and the Spanish-American Wars of Independence had drawn to a close the first wave of European colonisation, and the Industrial Revolution had led to massive industrial growth and urbanisation in Britain. Britain spent the middle of the 19th century consolidating both its colonial and naval power, building up its industry and infrastructure, and developing new technologies and medical advances. Britain became the so-called workshop of the world, and after dropping the Corn Laws in the 1840s, adopted an international policy of free trade, supplying other industrialising nations with goods. That began to change when Casement was a child. Prussian victory in the Franco-Prussian War, and the unification of Germany and Italy into singular nation-states, began to challenge British hegemony. In the 1870s, European economies entered the Great Depression, with Germany and France adopting protectionist trade policies to support their own industries. Africa, which up until then had seen only piecemeal colonisation, began to be seen as a huge new potential market for European goods which could rebalance the trade deficit. At the same time, only 10% of Africa by landmass had been colonised. Technologies such as the railway, steamboats and the telegraph, and medical advances such as quinine for the treatment of malaria, made the tropical regions of Africa viable for colonisation for the first time. Combining these economic and technical de- developments with the justification of race science and with Christian missionary zeal, the European powers began what became known as the Scramble for Africa, and explorers like David Livingstone and Henry Morton Stanley began to map the major rivers in the centre of the continent. In Brussels in the 1770s, King Leopold II of Belgium formed an organisation called the International Association for the Exploration and Civilization of Central Africa, a humanitarian front organisation with members from many European nations, behind which he planned for the mapping and subsequent colonisation of the Congo. We shall need to point out that Central Africa was not unoccupied or unexplored. Millions of people lived in the area around the Congo River, and many of the kingdoms and nations in the region, including the Kingdom of Congo, had made treaties with the British and the Portuguese. The British attempted to cut off access to the sea for the Belgians and became increasingly worried when a newly unified Germany began colonising areas in southwest Africa, as well as worrying that French colonisation in North Africa threatened access to their newly opened Suez Canal, and hence trade routes to India. Conflict over acquisitions began to worry Leopold, as the International African Association broke apart. So in 1884, Otto von Bismarck organised the Berlin Conference. At the conference, Africa was essentially divided up between the European powers, and they agreed to the principle of effective occupation. That is, the right to the land depended on your ability to establish control and administration of the people who, um, let's say, already live there. This was a context in which General Gordon was involved, if you remember um, last season, uh, in the occupation of Sudan. 
The Latin Leopold's new association, a successor organization to the front organization called the International Association of the Congo, fell under Leopold's personal control. Not Belgians, but Leopold's. It was given the name of the, uh, the Congo Free State, and Leopold ruled it as his personal private property. So as usual, the rule applies that the more adjectives there are in the name of a country, the more of a lie it is, right? The Congo Free State is the sort of personal fiefdom of this genocidal king. Exactly, yeah. Following the end of his work as a ship's purser, Casement, who was just 20 years old, got a job in 1884 working for the International African Association in the Congo. Leopold's humanitarian mission, itself deeply racist anyway, was even then just a cover for his drive for economic exploitation. The land in the Congo was perfect for the cultivation of naturally occurring rubber vines. The rubber was rare and could command huge markups in Europe. But it needed to reach the coast to be loaded onto, spe onto steamers for the European market. But the bottom 200 miles of the Congo River was impossible to navigate due to waterfalls. Casement's role was to survey the land to establish a new railway to connect the upper Congo to the sea, and to help oversee its construction. While there, he met two men who would have a significant impact on his life. The first was the captain of a steamer that navigated on the Congo, a British-Polish merchant marine called Joseph Conrad. Casement and Conrad had both come to the Congo motivated by the same sort of racist Christian ideologies of civilising the region through trade and religious conversion. But upon seeing the way the Congo Free State was administered, both began to become horrified by their complicity in it. Conrad would soon stop working as a ship's captain in order to become a writer, and in 1899 he wrote uh, an itself deeply problematic novel set against the background of the colonisation of the Congo called The Heart of Darkness. And that book, um, people can may know that book or may have encountered that book, uh, and there's also excellent kind of criticism of the limits of the uh, present or implied anti-colonial critique in that book um, in an essay, famous essay by the Nigerian writer Chinua Achebe. Yeah, uh, called An Image of Africa. The second man he met was another young British explorer named Herbert Ward. Ward and Casement were only a year apart in age and became firm friends. Ward attested to Casement in more than glowing terms. Imagine a tall, handsome man of fine bearing... Thin, mere muscle and bone, a suntanned face, blue eyes and black curly hair. A pure Irishman he is, with a captivating voice and singular charm of manner. A man of distinction and great refinement, high-minded and courteous, impulsive and poetical. Quixotic, perhaps some would say, and with a certain truth, for few men have shown themselves so regardless of personal advancement. What's he doing later? <laughs> yeah, um... He would also later write of Casement, No man walks this earth at the moment who is more absolutely good and honest and noble-minded. And his physical description of Casement is very accurate. In all the photos we have of Casement, he is quite astonishingly beautiful. And I, I do please, uh, Hugh was showing me pictures as we were researching this episode. Google Roger Casement. Yeah, Your eyes will thank you. He's extremely handsome. Very just. Oh. Mm. Dreamy. Mm. Uh, the two remained friends for almost 30 years, although there's nothing to suggest that they were anything more. In fact, as we shall see later, Casement appears to have had rather different tastes. Casement left his work for the Congo Free State and joined the British Colonial Office. It's another great institution. Hmm. In 1895, he was made Her Majesty's Consul in Maputo, in modern-day Mozambique, and in 1901 he was transferred to the French Congo. Two years later, the Balfour government in Britain commissioned Roger to write a report on the human rights situation in the Congo Free State. For weeks, Casement travelled around the region, interviewing workers on rubber, rubber plantations, soldiers and overseers. Having worked as part of the colonial system in Congo Free State, he surely knew what he was looking for. Now, why would the colonial office at that time want to report on the human rights situation? Was this a the sort of inter-European tension where the British are trying to present themselves as better or more humane colonizers than the Belgians? Um, yeah, I think that was part of it. I mean, we can discuss that a bit later, but I think also there was um, an element of keeping check upon the things that were, that were agreed upon in the Berlin Conference. Because, um, for, for example, part of the agreement of the Berlin Conference was that uh, Leopold could administer the Congo Free State, but had to allow for free trade to pass through all its rivers. So I think that was probably part of it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and for almost two decades, Leopold had run the Congo Free State as his own private colony. To meet Europe's growing demand for rubber, he'd instituted a corvée system of statute labour. By decree, the Congo, Congo Free State dictated that any land without a house or cultivated garden on it was the property of the state. Leopold then allocated the land, which was rich in natural resources, and particularly in rubber, to private companies as concessions. On the plantations run as concessions, law didn't uh, didn't govern the treatment of labourers. The demand for labour was high, so the state demanded labour from Congolese people as a form of taxation, creating the so-called red rubber system, which was essentially a slave society where people were forced to work. Local officials officials called capitas were recruited to organise the labour, but quotas for production were imposed from the central authority with little consideration of the situation on the ground, meaning meeting them was, uh, they were essentially unmeetable. The Free State also organised a military force to oversee production called the Force Publique. The officers of the Force Publique were white, while the soldiers were recruited from specific ethnic groups. Overseers carried a specific type of whip made of hippopotamus hide named, uh, named a chicote, which was a brutalizing weapon of fear. And this is where I'm going to step in and say that for maybe the next two or three minutes or so, we're going to have some very uh, graphic descriptions of how uh, just how brutal the system was. So listeners who don't want to hear that uh, might want to skip ahead a few minutes in the episode. Yeah, I I I've tried to sort of limit it to explain the nature of the system of production and how terror was used, but it is, and, and not to go much further than that, but it is a horrendous story. Um, I mean, the production of rubber was a tough job anyway. It involved spending days holding stress positions in trees, um, and often the workers would smother their skin in the latex to make it dry, which was the only way to make it dry before they sort of removed it, which was very painful. Um, and the red rubber system was one of extreme brutality. There was little to no central oversight, just central production quotas, meaning plantation managers in the force publique uh, instituted uh, a various different informal systems of punishment to ensure that the labourers worked, including hostage-taking, um, uh, murder and mass rape. The white authorities began to worry that the ammunition that they'd supplied to the force publique soldiers, which was imported at great expense, was being used for hunting, so they implemented a new system for ensuring labourers worked and that no ammunition was wasted. If the quota wasn't met, the plantation manager must, sus- must supply the severed hands of those who he'd punished for underproduction. The quota of severed hands became easier to meet than the quota of rubber. Historian Peter Forbath wrote, quote, The baskets of severed hands set down at the feet of the European post commanders became the symbol of the Congo Free State. The collection of hands became an end in itself. Force public soldiers brought them to the stations in place of rubber. They even went out to harvest them instead of rubber. They became a sort of currency. They came to be used to make up for shortfalls in rubber quotas, to replace the people who were demanded for the forced labour gangs, and the forced public soldiers were paid their bonuses on the basis of how many hands they collected. End quote. Um, the hand was supposed to prove that the worker had been murdered, but soldiers would actually just amputate hands of living workers and of their families in order to save their ammunition. The mutilation and uh, murder of workers, the seizure of land and the forced labour meant families couldn't produce enough food to survive, and so famine ensued. The white colonisers then kidnapped the orphaned children of their own victims and forced them into child colonies, where they'd be raised as more reserve labour. And I assume that absolutely no one was ever held responsible in any meaningful way for this system of uh, enforced, uh, brutal exploitation and murder. No, I read about one trial where one of the guys who ran one of these plantations um, uh, was sentenced for the murder of 60 um, workers and he got five years in prison. Fucking vile. Mm -hmm. So Casement documented all of these abuses and worse um, for the first time really being made public. He was sort of a whistleblower of the time. He made a very conservative estimate that three million people had died or been murdered under Leopold's regime. Casement's collaborator, the journalist E.D. Morel, claimed that 20 million people had died. Without census data, it's impossible to know, but many historians, including Adam Hochschild, uh, estimate that 10 million died, which would be 50% of the population of the Congo at the time. It was a period of uh, rapacious and truly evil greed, the whole of colonialism in a microcosm of racist terror and brutality. The casement report on the enslavement, mutilation and torture of natives on the rubber plantations caused an outcry, 
although many business owners trading with the free states refused to change their policies. The Belgian parliament ordered its own independent inquiry of the king's colony, which uh, backed up Casement's findings. The Belgian government took control of the free states in 1908, but it wasn't until 1960 that the Congo achieved independence. Its first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated by firing squad less than a year after in a coup. In 2002, the Belgian government formally apologised to the Congolese people and admitted to a moral responsibility and an irrefutable portion of responsibility in the events that led to the death of Lumumba. And the person who followed uh, Lumumba, who was a dictator who referred to himself as Mobutu Sese Seko, was a uh, just truly horrifying um, person propped up by Western governments um, who lived in profound luxury while um presiding over vast poverty and i mean the 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 record of uh western interference and domination in the congo is ongoing uh but certainly you can't say that it had any meaningful end until even the 1990s um yeah absolutely and in fact many uh, african countries after colon- uh, in the sort of post colonization period became part of a sort of cold war proxy war between the united states and the ussr absolutely and that's certainly um the way in which Lumumba was was assassinated, um, and uh, the civil wars in the Congo that have followed the um, rule of uh, Mobutu have been also uh, horrifying and bloody. Um, and because this history isn't taught or spoken about, those wars are used in media as evidence of some kind of uh, essential ungovernability uh, or sort of ingrained problems or a tragedy of Africa as opposed to being understood as expressions of um, this unbelievable campaign of um, unjustifiable, disgusting, brutal violence, um, which was central to the construction of the ongoing violent world system in which we currently live. In 1906, the Foreign Office sent Roger to Brazil, where he rose to become the Consul General in Rio de Janeiro. He was appointed to a commission to investigate the Peruvian Amazon Company, or PAC, a rubber extraction company that was registered in the UK with British shareholders and directors. It was run by the rubber baron Julio Cesar Arana, and allegations had been made that in its Peruvian plantations in Putumayo, uh, workers were treated as virtual slaves. Some of those workers were said to be Barbadians, who were British subjects, giving casement the right to investigate. Casement interviewed workers and discovered a regime of brutality, casual murder, sexual abuse and beatings. What a shock! Mm. According to the Irish journalist Fintan O'Toole, quote, The report, published as an official government document in 1912, is a brilliant piece of journalism, weaving together a detailed account of the workings of the rubber trade with first-person statements from victims and perpetrators of atrocities. Never before had distant colonial subjects been given such personal voices in an official document. The semi-official London Times proclaimed that Casement was, has, quote, deserved well of his countrymen and of mankind. A long sermon was preached at Westminster Abbey, praising Casement for exposing the most infamous oppression that has ever served the interest of cupidity or strained the record of despotism. Arana and the Peruvian government promised reform. Casement returned a year later to see there had been improvements, but there hadn't. Writing in his report about the use of pillories as punishment for workers, he said, Men, women and children were confined in them for days, weeks and often months. Whole families were imprisoned, fathers, mothers and children, and many cases were reported of parents dying thus, either from starvation or from wounds caused by flogging, while their offspring were attached alongside of them to watch in misery themselves the dying agonies of their parents. Now again... Why is the British Foreign Office and the British Colonial Office uh, sending Casement out to do this kind of investigative work? Does it have to do with Britain's desire to sort of portray itself or to understand itself as uh, the sort of more humane colonizer? Um, In this instance, the justification was the use of Barbadians who were British subjects um, within uh, these foreign camps. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. In 1911, back in London, Casement was knighted for his work on behalf of indigenous Amazonians, on top of receiving the Companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George that he had received for his work in the Congo. And like you said, why was Casement being given these gongs from an imperialist power like Great Britain? Well, 
partly was because his investigations were obviously aimed at Britain's rivals and because of his work in Peru. And the Amazon, uh, that was seen to be in defence of British subjects, that is, their colonial subjects. But it's also worth pointing out that within Britain at the time, there was some form of popular moral and political opposition to colonialism, especially in the aftermath of the Boer War. In 1902, the liberal economist J.A. Hobson had written his economic treatise, Imperialism, which had positioned imperialism as a result of imbalances within capitalist society, and not as an offshoot of nationalism. Hobson also separated imperialism as a necessary corollary or development of capitalism, unlike, say, Lenin, who published his Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, in 1917. But both included a moral critique of the crimes of imperialism. Also, it must be said, Hobson was deeply anti-Semitic, especially in attributing the causes of war in South Africa. This sentiment was echoed in socialist politicians at the time, including in the anti-Semitic speeches of Keir Hardy, who was the founder of the Labour Party. The fact that the critique of imperialism and colonialism at the time was a moral one should not obscure the fact that it was often, if not usually, deeply patrician, if not racist. Much of the Christian white moral critique revolved around a sort of racist idea of a duty of care to lesser races, a mirror of the white man's burden that was itself a justification for colonialism in the first place. Critiques like Hobson's, while opposing imperialism, still revolved around a social Darwinism and advocacy of eugenics. In Hobson's words, a rational culture in this wide social interest might, however, require a repression of the spread of degenerate or unprogressive races. Ugh. Casement's writings at the time are unusual in their foregrounding of indigenous voices and the way they disrupt the prominent racist concept of a civilising mission. I think that's important to highlight given the way the idea of quote-unquote things being different back then is utilised as a defence of racist colonialism in today's culture wars. A good example of that is during the recent campaign to remove the statue of the British imperialist and extremely bad gay Cecil Rhodes from his alma mater, Oriel College, Oxford, mirroring a similar campaign in the University of Cape Town. This normalisation of racism is not just something that was part of the culture at the time, it is intended to derail discussions of not just imperialism, but its legacy and the implications it still has for indigenous people and people of colour today and for countries that were colonised not least the huge expropriation of wealth and natural resources that happened in many, and in many cases continues to happen. The removal of the Statue of Rhodes would, many claim, rewrite history. But leaving aside the, the fact that we learn history from archives, books and oral records and not statues, it's clear that what, uh, what is being claimed as a rewriting of history is actually more just adding more historical perspectives to the mix. We do write, rewrite history all the time as we discover more sources and as we allow more voices to be heard. Rhodes was an architect of apartheid, an imperialist who made vast profits off the exploitation of people whom he believed were of lesser races. He once said, quote, The native is to be treated as a child and denied the franchise. We must adopt a system of despotism in our relations with the barbarians of South Africa. Yet another bad gay, Matthew Paris, wrote in The Spectator, um, I admire Rhodes tremendously. I admire his achievements, and I'd argue that what is now Zimbabwe is the better for his life and work. His racism was routine for his era, and he was not unusually cruel, so I would not blame him for his racial attitudes. But the fact is that he was, as London knows very well, an unscrupulous chancer. Rhodes was a dreamer, an achiever, and a rascal. That was in 2016. Jesus yeah. Christ. Uh, when the calls to put Rhodes into the context of his time were sort of at their at their height, you know. But um, Rhodes and Casement were basically contemporaries. So at the very least, Casement's story complicates this sort of facile excuse, this justification. Rhodes was a racist, and being racist was extremely common at the time, but the... And the thing is, so Rhodes was a racist, and Casement was probably also a racist, and everybody probably was more racist than they are now, and most white people now are also racist... And most white people now probably do racist things and think racist things. And certainly all white people benefit from an organized system of racial, global racial capitalism. But the idea that to try to acknowledge that or to try to stop celebrating people who actually built that system of global racial capitalism in which we all live is somehow rewriting history is, and I say this as a historian, patently fucking absurd. Yep. And it is a discredit to my discipline that people who claim to be historians, people like Niall fucking Ferguson, 
perpetrate that stuff and go around and make these arguments and say these things and what they are is bootlicking, boring, power-hungry, power-loving, power-worshipping assholes, and their arguments have nothing to do with defense of the discipline of history as such, but instead are nakedly political. They are trying to disguise them inside this sort of other garb. Don't let them. They should be mocked and denounced and interrupted and spoken over and argued against and discredited at every opportunity, period. End rant. It's not a rant. It's entirely true. Um, and the, the the moral debate around colonialism was was happening at the same time, even even within that racist society. Even if there was a default racism cutting across society, it, it was still possible to make moral decisions and make moral stands against imperial and, imperialism and colonialism. While Rhodes was advocating white supremacism, uh, Casement was writing in a letter home, What has civilization itself been to them? A thing of horror, of smoking rifles and pillaged homes, of murdered fathers, violated mothers and enslaved children. I was looking at this tragedy with the eyes of another race, of a people once hunted themselves, and I said to myself then, far up the Lalanga River, that I would do my part as an Irishman, wherever it may lead. Um, this choice is still there. We live in a deeply racist society which doesn't want to look at its imperial history straight in the face. Because it's unjustifiable. How no. do you justify buckets of hands? You don't. You can't. So instead you do this bullshit. Yeah. And we still can each take that decision whether uh, we believe at the very least that Rhodes shouldn't be celebrated with statues or that we should remember Rhodes who said, quote, I contend that we white Englishmen are the first race in the world and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. Is that the words of a rascal? No. No, it's not the words of a rascal. It's the words of somebody who, if he had said that in German in the 1940s, would have been tried at the Nuremberg trials and who people in the spectator would be spending a lot of time celebrating their moral righteousness over because of their military victory against him. So, and it it, it is just, I mean, these people, people who engage in defending colonialism and people who do that under the guise of somehow standing up for history are either committed white supremacists or bootlicking and or very stupid servants of white supremacy and either way they shouldn't be listened to because you shouldn't listen to idiots and you shouldn't listen to white supremacists period and rant two well actually he might have got away with a spectator because the spectator published an um, article the headline in defense of the wehrmacht anyway and and the spectator has ongoing power over British politics. Yes, maybe this is why eugenicists are being invited into Boris Johnson's cabinet and why some people are trying to uh, make that seem harmless too. Yeah. Anyway, back to Roger Casement's life. Damn it. Damn. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, in 1913, he retired from the British consular service and immediately threw himself into the Irish struggle for national liberation. He'd been a member of Sinn Féin, the Irish Nationalist Party, since 1905. In November of 1913, he helped form the Irish Volunteers, a nationalist militia formed in response to the creation of the Ulster Volunteers. And he was a founding member alongside Patrick Pearce and Joseph Plunkett. He travelled to the United States on behalf of the Volunteers to build up support uh, and to make connections with exiled nationalists in Clan Nagal. As tensions in Europe began to rise in the run-up to the First World War, Casement organised and helped to fund the illegal importation in July of 1914 of 1,500 rifles into Health Harbour in order to arm the volunteers. Some of these guns were used in the Easter Rising of 1916. In October of 1914, with Britain now at war with Germany, Casement disguised himself and travelled via Norway to Germany. He saw himself as an ambassador for a nascent independent island, his travelling companion, Adler Christensen, was summoned to the British legation in Oslo, where they offered him almost £3 million in today's money, plus immunity from prosecution for helping to capture Casement. The British diplomat, Mansfeld Findlay, uh, suggested the reason he never took up on the offer is Christensen and Casement were lovers. Once in Germany, Casement negotiated with the Germans and achieved an agreement in case of a German invasion of Britain, the text of which reads... 
The imperial government formally declares that under no circumstances would Germany invade Ireland with a view to its conquest or the overthrow of any native institutions in that country, should the fortune of this great war that was not of Germany's seeking ever bring in its course German troops to the shores of Ireland, they would land there not as an army of invaders to pillage and destroy, but as the forces of a government that is inspired by goodwill towards a country and people for whom Germany desires only national prosperity and national freedom. Casement then visited the German prisoner of war camps, where he tried to organise Irish prisoner of wars into the Irish Brigade. He didn't get much luck. The threat of execution uh, were Britain to win the war was probably too strong as well as the fact that many troops, having fought on the front line, had maintained their loyalty to Britain. But he did manage to persuade the Germans to provide 20,000 rifles and 10 machine guns. He had learnt about the plans for the Easter Rising in April 1916, and he wanted to reach Ireland before it started, in order to delay the Rising in time for the arrival of the arms shipment. On the 21st of April, three days before the Rising was scheduled to begin, he was dropped by a German U-boat in County Kerry. Upon landing, he was struck by a relapse of the malaria that he'd picked up in the Congo, and was too sick to travel. He hid in an ancient fort nearby, but he was caught and arrested on charges of high treason, sabotage and espionage. It's thought the Irish volunteers knew of his presence, and could have rescued him, but had been ordered not to take any action in the run-up to the Rising. The arms shipment, meanwhile, never arrived. The British had intercepted information about it, and the boat was stopped by the Royal Navy before being scuttled by its captain. Casement was taken to London and held in Brixton Prison awaiting trial. The trial was complicated. Arcane legal arguments meant that there was some confusion as to whether treason could be committed while he was out of the country. <laughs> That's Ar great. Yeah. Argument revolved around whether an unpunctuated sentence in the original law implied that the crime had to be committed in the country or whether the crime having effect in the country were enough. Casement wrote that he was to be, quote, hanged on a comma and the decision went against him. Meanwhile, the prosecution had uncovered more incriminating evidence, not of treachery, but of homosexuality. Well, one's as bad as the other, right? The same thing. Uh, these were four diaries, covering the years 1903, 1910, and two for 1911, including the time that Roger was in the Amazon. In them, he details his desires for and sexual experiences with young men who he met on his travels. These so-called black diaries are fascinating portraits of Casement, his relationship with the people in the countries he was travelling to, and most of all, his sexual subjectivity. They're so numerous and detailed that we can really learn uh, that Casement had a type. We also learned that Casement was, to coin a phrase, a size queen. Ah. Uh, here are some entries. Just... Oh, good entries. August the 10th, onshore at 6.35, met Joao again at Undeciphered. He gave roses, promised to call him later, and he said, roses, to stream in forest. Two caboclo boys there at hut, bathed and back to Hillary at 10.30. Very tired, letters from home. I'd be tired too. What, that's three in one morning? I don't know if the implication is the had his... Oh yeah, maybe he did have the other two boys. Um, afternoon on shore a minute, too hot. Then after dinner to Big Square and all over the place, including Baptista Campos but none, although several possible types. And then the next day's entry ends, Policeman, M. Paisana, enormous, five year, five dollars. Um, here's another. December the 1st. I fear the Atahualpa will not sail until Monday the 5th, certainly not until Sunday the 4th. Huge erection Indian boy at Hernandez came at 3 to 4, a whole hour, up at 5.30 and out for coffee, all closed at 7.00. Fingered and pulled. <laughs> back back to tea and out with booths at 7.35 again. And uh, the post ends. No sign of Ignacio Torres since Tuesday night. Not a glimpse. Fear he has gone in launch. Saw Julio in white pants and shirt Alhambra. Splendid stern. Yeah, look at the stern on him, eh? Um, he also used a code, uh, the code X, to indicate that he'd fucked someone or been fucked. Uh, so, Gabriel Ramos, X, deep to hilt, which ends in very deep thrusts. As I would hope it did. Um, here's another one from February 28th. Deep screw into hilt. Mario in Rio, eight and a half plus six inches. Forty dollars. <sighs> Hospitaria, Rua de, de Hospitio, 
$3 only, fine room, shut window, lovely, young, 18 and glorious. Biggest since Lisbon, July 1904, and as big, perfectly huge. Nunca veo mayor, nunca. And then two days later on March the 2nd, arrived Sao Paulo, Antonio $10, Rua Doretia, dark followed and hard, Teatro Municipal, breathed and quick, enormous push, loved mightily to hilt deep X. Uh, here's another one. Agostino kissed my name, kissed many times. Or another one. Splendid erections. Ramon, seven, $7, at least 10 inches. My goodness gracious <laughs> me. Um, I mean, these are complicated relations, uh, both due to the sort of racial hierarchies of the society that he was moving in, the sort of wealth and power discrepancies, and to the fact that Casement was usually paying for sex. Yet the accounts are marked by a tenderness and a refusal of many of the racial distinctions that were made at the time. But again, here there is a power and ability to choose, to cast certain bodies as desirable, as fetishized, that occurred within the framework of colonial and racial power. I think here's a good time to read a short passage from the uh, Irish writer Fintan O'Toole on the relationship between Casement's homosexuality and his anti-imperialist politics, which he wrote in his review of Mario Vargas Llosa's novelization of Casement's life. Quote, Consider an important early incident in Casement's career in Africa. In the Congo, he witnessed a young native man being so cruelly flogged at the behest of the Belgian officer, Emile Franke, that he was literally cut to pieces. Casement records that I had to have him carried in my own hammock for over 50 miles when taking him to Borma, to the state doctor, to have his wounds dressed and in order that I might lodge a complaint on his behalf. I was laughed at for my pains. This is an important moment in the emergence of Casement's moral revulsion against the operation of imperialism. It is especially interesting because that revulsion is a visceral response to an assault on a male body being literally cut to pieces. Casement's response in carrying the man 50 miles in his hammock makes him the object of ridicule. He's broken not just the rules of imperial power relations, but also the codes of 19th century manliness. It would be silly and reductive to see this incident as merely an expression of Casement's sexuality. Equally, however, it ought to attract the novelist's imaginative sympathy as a moment in which Casement's love of the male body and willingness to be unmanly fuses with his horror at cruelty and injustice. The writer W.G. Seabold in his uh, novel Rings of Saturn wrote, We may draw from this the conclusion that it was precisely Casement's homosexuality that sensitised him to the continuing oppression, exploitation and destruction across the borders of social class and race of those who were furthest from the centres of power. There's uh, always been accusations that the British forged diaries to discredit Casement, and certainly they did use their existence to the utmost of their abilities. The British government shared some memoranda the case, uh, when Casement was still on trial regarding the diaries, which went, Casement's diaries and his ledger entries, covering many pages of closely typed matter, show that he has for, for years been addicted to the grossest sodomitical practices. Of late years, he seems to have completed the full cycle of sexual degeneracy, and from a pervert has become an invert, a woman or pathic who derives his satisfaction from attracting men and inducing them to use him. In other words, he's gone from being a top to a bottom. Um, transcribed typed copies of some of the most incriminating pages of the diaries were secretly shared by the government. This hugely undermined Roger's support, not just amongst British friends who might have been liable to overlook some of his political activities, but amongst his allies in the Irish nationalist movement. His old friends Joseph Conrad and Herbert Ward disowned him. Casement's reputation was besmirched for a generation, his role as a martyr destroyed before it could be built. At the same time, the prosecution actually offered for a sort of plea bargain, with the diaries used as evidence that Casement was guilty but insane, and he'd therefore avoid hanging. But Casement refused the offer. Appeals were made for his clemency, including from Arthur Conan Doyle, Yates and Judge George Bernard Shaw, but to no avail. He lost his appeal, was stripped of his knighthood, and was sentenced to death. He was hanged by the British state in Pentonville Prison on the 3rd of August 1916, at the age of 51. Father Carey, the Catholic priest who attended to Casement in his prison cell on the day of his execution, said Roger was a saint. We should be praying to him instead of for him. The executioner, Albert Ellis, later said, He appeared to me the bravest man it fell to my unhappy lot to execute. 
We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff, Patreon, T-shirts, episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes. That's badgazepod.com. Well, that's an incredible story, Hugh. Um, and thank you so much for telling it so well, as always. I want to start by asking about uh, this question of uh, reputation. Um, so, and I sort of know the answer to this question because um, my own academic research is about gays like casement people who kind of uh, forged out of uh, either personal experiences or out of uh, anthropological or ethnographic data, um, large portions of the kind of identity system of uh, modern metropolitan homosexuality. Um, and so Casement sort of lost his reputation potentially as an anti-colonial uh, hero um, because of the Black Diaries, but he gained a reputation to some extent as a gay hero. I mean, I know I've run into um, descriptions of him or discussions of him in a lot of kind of gay liberation era texts of the 70s. Are you aware of, of that uh, starting even earlier in the UK? Or um, No, the Black Diaries weren't actually published until the 1950s. Um, and I don't think a fully unexpurgated uh, version was published until this century, in fact. Um, I am aware, yeah, again, of him becoming a hero around the 1970s for, for gay men. But um, I think, again, like you said, it was very complicated. He was repatriated. His body was repatriated from uh, from Pentonville Prison to Ireland in the 1960s. And he was given um, a, a ceremonial funeral at which Eamon de Valera, who was the last remaining survivor of the Easter Rising, was present. So, despite the uh, diaries being under, like being in common knowledge at that point and having been published, um, he had at that point sort of regained his reputation as an anti-colonial hero within Ireland, um, rightly so. Um, I think the relationship between his reputation as a gay hero and an anti-colonial hero is really interesting. I I don't often see them tied together necessarily. Uh, there are some there are, there are some books obviously and more and more but there t- there still seems to be this tension between people who say like he was an he was an anti-colonial hero and it's sad that he they tried to destroy his reputation with this rather than reading now which is that like he was an anti-colonial hero and a gay hero and his black diaries in no way besmirch his reputation they're part of who he was and in, indeed as um Colm Toybin was writing and Vinton O'Toole was writing and um uh uh, W.G. Seabold are writing that it, the, that his sexuality was an intrinsic link to his understanding of oppression and his um, his shift away from British imperialism. Yeah, I mean, I think the only extent to which they would besmirch his reputation in my book would be to the extent that um, there are all kinds of, um, at the very least, problematic or uncomfortable power discrepancies or power differentials in the ways that these bodies... Um, Casement's body and the bodies that people is having sex with are being kind of parsed and understood and made available to one another. And I think there is this kind of moment in the 1970s, certainly, at least in the U.S. context, you think about the um, kind of circle of uh, gay liberationists in the in the Bay Area that, that comes up around Gay Sunshine, the newspaper and the press. Um, and these are people who I think really understand themselves in Casement's mold. Uh, they understand themselves as being what they would at that time call third world liberationists. Uh, but at the same time, these are uh, white men often who are publishing uh, excerpts of uh, or sort of books of whether it's supposed to be Latin American or African gay literature, um, assigning that literature that they're publishing and translating to categories like gay without doing too much thinking about the ways in which that category itself is related to 
this uh, oppression of third world people that they want to get rid of. Um, and also kind of fundamentally understanding, uh, black and brown bodies in these exoticized ways um, that are their own form of racism. Um, so, I mean, I think casement is problematic and troubling in that way, um, but I also think it's possible to understand that and also see how um, a certain kind of uh, homosexual experience or desire can also lead someone towards an anti-colonial critique. And that's something that we actually see quite a lot and not just in casement. I mean, um, it, it's all over, it's all over our, our queer history. Um, think about T.E. Lawrence, who we profiled on this show, who I think has a similar kind of anti-colonial critique to casement, um, who ends up being, um, working for a lot of the same kind of colonial institutions that casement does listeners might recall that Lawrence wanted to write a biography of casement, uh, after casement's execution, but was frustrated from doing it, uh, because you couldn't get your hands on a copy of the unexpurgated black diaries. And, and mm. Lawrence basically decided, you know, Hey, if, if I can't, if I can't read the good stuff, I'm not going to do the, di- uh, not going to do the biography, but that was a, that was going to be a project of Lawrence's in the 1920s. Yeah, Absolutely. I do think there's also a complication here as well in terms of talking about the degree to which there is perhaps like this fetishize, fetishization because, um, and, and in terms of him paying, which is that we have so little information other than this one, these, what these, what these four diaries, especially regarding what his sex life might have been like in Ireland and in Britain at the time and in the USA, which he also visited, um, which might complicate that narrative even more that, um, we don't we don't necessarily know that he would only sleep for example or have sex with um with people in the Congo and people in Africa so that that might be might also complicate things yeah and i mean the other thing is he wasn't it's not as though he was i mean a lot of the a lot of the gay publications of of casement's time in for example weimar germany are circulating kind of eroticized images of or descriptions of black and brown people um and part of the kind of racialized problematic that you can analyze there is the fact that these images are being circulated and it's this kind of media economy uh, in which a certain image of the um, – whether it's the noble savage or the kind of sexy dusky native or some combination of the two uh, is being kind of promoted or circulated and Casement isn't doing that. I mean the diaries are very much not intended for anyone else's consumption other than his own, um, although we also don't know um, – much about how he actually interacted with these bodies. Um, it's just also difficult to know anything clearly about. So I think it's interesting to talk about the ways in which it can lead people. And this is very much the, the approach that my own research on this takes. The ways in which uh, desires like this um, could lead white people to take either um, to take sort of anti-colonial paths that were sort of limited by um, limited by the power differentials and by their own perspectives or um, sometimes pro-colonial uh, paths in, in the, the worst and most disturbing cases, but Casement is not one of them. Can we connect Casement with any of the other kind of um, gay, prominent uh, homosexual people of his time? I mean, uh, fellow, beautiful English leftist snack Edward Carpenter, for example, or, or anyone like that? Are there any kind of letters or other kinds of um, interactions that, that you've been able to get any detail on? Um, not that I've found any evidence of. It appears that because he was traveling so much, I imagine that probably confused things a little bit. And also because um, a lot of his letters are obviously focused on his dealings with um, Irish nationalists, of which he, who, whom he was like closely associated with throughout the 1910s or 1905 to 1910s. Interesting. And then uh, one more question. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, sometimes he was seen as this anti-colonial hero who had been unfairly besmirched by these gay rumors. Um, you know, besmirch me, daddy. Um, is there any evidence that any of that might be true? I mean, some of the other gays that you've profiled this season have been questionably gay. What do we think about, about Caseman? Is there any chance that this was all kind of cooked up to, to discredit him or, um, not that it should discredit him, but at the time it would have, I mean, if you wanted to discredit someone at the time, you could, you could, this would be a pretty good way to do it. Um, it's an ongoing debate. There are still people who claim that they they were forger that they were forgeries, and there are still are now people a lot more people who would claim that they're probably real. Um, in my opinion, from what I've read and what I've read of his diaries and discussions around it, I think that the evidence pretty firmly comes down on the fact that they're real. 
Um, for a start, they're pretty complete. Uh, they match the details of his actual diaries. It seemed that he was sort of keeping two diaries, one which is his white diaries, which were, were um, covering his actual um, uh, government business at the time as, as a consul. Um, and they, they feature like a lot of information as well. So whoever's written, if they've been forged, they've gone to a great effort to insert the sort of sexual details alongside a lot of other sort of information gossip discussions of what was happening at the time, most of which match up. They seem to make sense. There are discrepancies, but there are also discrepancies that could be produced by this fact that this guy was traveling around writing three diaries every night, tired, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, secondly, for me, if they are forgeries, then I think the forger was gay. Because the the way that desire is described and elucidated in it is not that is not some this is not some like Whitehall bureaucrat who's had, having to forge something you know like I don't yeah, think why, at this time the idea of a size queen is not I mean now maybe people would know that but like this is not a moment when people are going to be like oh you know when someone would have known that 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 eight inches was something that that would have had some kind of gay currency um yeah and you know the description up to the hilt and the roses and you know the thrusting this is a pornographic mindset thrusting of the best type thrusting and roses roses Um, and thrusting we should rename this podcast roses and thrusting yeah and also for example he uses uh in his uh, the diaries when he was in the congo he uses um kikongo slang so that if they were forgeries they've done an extremely good job and then lastly in the 1930s Eamon Duggan uh, wrote that um, Michael Collins and I saw the casement diary by arrangement with Lord Birkenhead we read it I do not know I did not know casement's handwriting Collins did he said it was his the diary was in two parts bound volumes repeating ad nauseum details of sex perversion of the personal appearance and beauty of native boys with special reference to a certain portion of their anatomy it was disgusting Sounds fun to me, but, you know, that's just me. So, Hugh, Roger Casement, good gay, bad gay, good not gay, not gay, bad, good, gay, mad, not? Uh, I'd say not just a good gay, but maybe one of the best. Excellent gay, terrible times that he was limited by, uh, rendered bad and complicated by uh, horrible social judgment, but uh, stand-up chap, very good, highly recommend, also gorgeous, oh my god, gorgeous. (laughs) Um, so anyway, uh, if people wanted to learn more about Roger Casement, where would they go and what are some of the sources that you used to research this episode? So the main source is, uh, on the Black Diaries is by uh, Jeffrey Dudgeon, which is called Roger Casement, the Black Diaries, which is the unexpurgated version with a study of his background, sexuality and Irish political life that goes into quite some detail. Um, I also looked at Roger Casement by Brian Inglis um, and then... In the book Love in a Dark Time, Gay Lives from Wild to Almodovar by Com Toybin, there's also a chapter on uh, on him. Um, on top of that, in terms of his time in South America, there's a book by Jordan Goodman called The Devil and Mr. Casement, One Man's Struggle for Human Rights in South, South America's Heart of Darkness. And then, of course, there's the fictionalization um, by Mario Vargas Llosa, um, which is the dream of the Celt, which perhaps is worth reading, but with a very critical mind. For example, he seems to conclude that the diaries were not forgeries, but were fictions written by Caseman himself. And there are a, 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 str- a string of sort of kind of problematic, slightly homophobic implications mm-hmm. in his study, which is perhaps unsurprising given him he's the author. Um, more generally, on Conrad, uh, we mentioned uh, An Image of Africa by uh, Chinua Achebe, which is um, really definitely worth reading. And King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror and heroism in colonial Africa by Adam Hoschild. And then there are a few articles as well that I found online, which I'd like to mention because they were really helpful in writing this. One of which is The Multiple Hero by Fintan O'Toole in The New Republic. Roger Casement and a History Question by Angus Mitchell in History Island. And The Queer and Unusual Life of Roger Casement by Noel Halifax in Socialist Review. Ah, oh, Noel. I know Noel. Nice article. So, um, if... Oh, can, one other you... thing I just wanted to mention in terms of this is uh, there was also a censored book by our old friend H. Montgomery Hyde. H. Montgomery Hyde. We'll have to get around to him one of these yeah. days. 
So, thank you so much as always for listening. You can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or subscribe to my newsletter, Utopian Drivel, which is at hugh.substack.com. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week for more Bad Gaze. Bye! Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.